So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch to take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. Welcome to the second session of our spooky session series for October. The movie that we're discussing today is debatably spookier than Silence of the Lambs. Well, I think definitely scarier if you ask Dr. Fran. Agreed. (laughs) Give you a briefing about the institution. All I know is it's a mental hospital. But they're criminally insane. Gentlemen. Welcome to Shutter Island. You're hereby required to surrender your firearms. We are duly appointed federal marshals. But during your stay, you will obey protocol. Is that understood? We take only the most dangerous and damaged patients, ones no other hospital can manage. These are all violent defenders, right? They've hurt people, murdered them in some cases. In almost all cases, yes. Will you try to provide them with a measure of calm? Personally, Doctor, I'd have to say screw their sense of calm. We haven't heard the truth once yet, but no one will talk. It's like they're scared of something. Wouldn't you agree? When you see a monster, you must stop it. So we're going to be having Shutter Island on our couch today. And like Dr. Sam said, I did find this a little spookier than Silence of the Lambs. Um, We'll get into it, but the dream sequences just really got me. They were very, very creepy. (laughs) So Dr. Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Shutter Island is? So Shutter Island was directed by Martin Scorsese and is based on a novel by Dennis Lehane. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio as U.S. Marshal Teddy Daniels. So Teddy and his new partner Chuck, as played by Mark Ruffalo, are summoned to Ashcliff Hospital, a fortress-like psychiatric facility located on a remote island off the coast of Boston to help find a patient who has escaped. She appears to just have vanished from a locked room with little clues, and as the investigation progresses, there are hints of something more nefarious happening at Ashcliff. And there is a lot to cover in today's episode, and so we're super excited to have a special guest joining us, Dr. Emily Weber, to help us discuss Shutter Island. Um, So Dr. Weber is a forensic psychologist in Columbus, Ohio. She conducts a range of criminal forensic evaluations for the courts, including assessing individuals' competence to stand trial, criminal responsibility, and dangerousness. She completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology in Chicago, Illinois, where she conducted research focused on the role of stress, coping processes, and self-efficacy in different offender populations. Her interest in forensic psychology began during her first year of graduate school, and she pursued training opportunities working in different forensic settings, including probation departments and a federal detention center. She's completed her internship with the Bureau of Prisons, where she gained additional forensic evaluation experience and also worked with those charged with sex offenses and with serious mental illness. 
She completed her postdoctoral fellowship, gaining additional forensic specialized experience at NetCare Forensic Center. So quite a background in forensic psychology. So we're super excited to have Dr. Weber join us today. Yes, welcome, Dr. Weber. We are thrilled to have you. And I agree, I'm so impressed by your bio and your background. And it's just such a different world um, from the things that I'm seeing day to day. So I'm really (laughs) looking forward to talking with you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me to come on the podcast. I'm excited to be here and talk about this very spooky movie. (laughs) So to help our listeners get to know you a little bit more, what are some of your favorite TV shows and movies? I'm actually not too much of a of a movie watcher. I had not seen Shutter Island before you guys invited me to join the (laughs) podcast. And like Dr. Adam uh, from last week, I've, I've not seen Silence of the Lambs either. So TV shows are definitely more of my jam. And I like a variety of them. Um, anything from Homeland to This Is Us, uh, you can find me watching. So Nice. Those are both good ones. Yeah, awesome. And I'm glad to see that we are helping forensic psychologists all over the country watch these like infamous forensic psychology movies. So. <laughs> I know. It should be required viewing, but maybe it's kind of you see, a, you see it a lot by day and don't like to watch it by night as much. That makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> So let's go ahead and get into Shutter Island. So early in the movie, we're introduced to Teddy Daniels. He's the U.S. Marshal that's headed to Ashcliff um, by boat to help find the missing patient. Yeah, and we wanted to give a little bit of background on Teddy because we do learn quite a bit of history on what happened to him before he arrives at Ashcliff. So we learned that he served in World War II. Um, he was present at the liberation of a concentration camp. We do get some flashes. He has um, nightmares and you know intrusive thoughts or memories come up about some of the liberation and what happened. And it's really disturbing um, and definitely seems to have had an impact on him. Um, he does seem to kind of throughout the progression of the film develop like I mean, it's hard to tell if it's a paranoia because it might actually be going on, but he's concerned that there might be Nazi doctors operating at Ashcliff, and it really makes sense that given his history, he has those concerns and he's really on edge or aware that those things might be going on here as well. And as you all know, Dr. Fran does have a lot of expertise in this area of trauma and PTSD, so we will be able to kind of continue to break down what we see with Teddy and how it relates to this history. Um, Additionally, we learn early on that his wife is dead and that she died in a fire. She died. Jesus. Don't worry about it. There was a fire at the apartment building while I was at work. Four people died. It was a smoke that got her, not the fires. So this is another instance through the movie that we see. He's seeing nightmares of his wife covered in ash and fire and blood. Um, And again, as the movie progresses, we even start to see that he may be having hallucinations or are these more just thoughts that he's having, but he's seeing his wife um, throughout the movie and she seems to be kind of giving him messages and warnings. And another interesting piece that comes up is his relationship with water. Um, it comes up a lot in these nightmares and in these flashbacks. And even in the first scene, he's very like uneasy and you're kind of figuring out, is he like vomiting and having these reactions because he's on a boat for the first time and he's just seasick, but he seems to be having pretty strong reactions to water. But what we know about his history, like the concentration camps and the 
um, his wife dying by fire, we're not really sure where that water connection comes in. So just kind of something that's just kind of in the back of our minds as we're watching the film. Something definitely is going on there. I feel like when you mentioned that to me, Dr. Fran, I started to pick up on some additional clues that even when people would talk about water around Teddy, people were kind of like looking to him for his reaction. So something going on there and maybe, just maybe we'll find out what. Yeah, we already have Dr. Sam has her spy notebook out for this episode as well. She's taking, she's writing down all the clues to figure out what's going on at Ashcliff and with Teddy. Yeah, I filled a whole notebook with this one. So there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) I think additionally with Teddy, we find out as well that he does have a history of alcohol use related to his past traumas and the difficulty that he had after the war. Um, And we also see throughout the movie that he is quick to anger or frustration, having some irritability, and we see some outbursts throughout. So we'll be able to dive into those more as they come up as well. Yeah, so just kind of like a background for Teddy, it does seem like even right off the bat, we have some hints or some clues that there might be some post-traumatic stress disorder type symptoms, which make total sense given his history of some really horrific traumatic events that he's been through. But we're kind of meeting him and then kind of seeing him go through uh, this investigation with that background in mind. Well, luckily for Teddy, with his history and trauma and just the difficulties that he's had, he's headed to a very happy and soothing place. He ends up at Ashcliff Hospital. (laughs) Um, It's actually kind of pretty. Yeah, that's true. It is kind of pretty. It looks like a castle on an island. Um, But once uh, once Teddy gets through the gates and once we see more about it, I don't think it's the most soothing environment or even the most positive. And as we know, Teddy is there to help catch a patient or an individual that has escaped. Um, They arrive on the island and very quickly were given a interesting introduction to Ashcliff Hospital. Let's actually listen as some of the guards and psychiatrists describe the facility. All I know is it's a mental hospital for the criminally insane. (laughs) We take only the most dangerous damaged patients, ones no other hospital can manage. A moral fusion between law and order and clinical care. So from what we hear in these clips, Ashcliff is described as a psychiatric facility for the criminally insane. And we chatted about this a little bit when discussing Sires of the Lambs, but Dr. Weber, we really want to get your thoughts on kind of what it means to be criminally insane. Sure. So uh, sanity is a is a legal term. Um, and I, I think what they're referring to in this case when they're calling uh, this facility for people who are criminally insane is people who were charged with crimes and then were subsequently found not guilty by reason of insanity. So essentially you kind of have this overlap of somebody who has um, mental health issues and that uh, was involved in uh, why they committed their crime essentially. And so Dr. Weber, what happens after someone is found not guilty by reason of insanity? So um, someone who's found guilty of a crime uh, and is not found not guilty by reason of insanity, those uh, individuals would be sentenced to uh, time in jail or prison, depending on the severity of the crime. Um, but if you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, those those statutes are um, essentially that you, at the time that you committed the offense, you are experiencing symptoms of a mental illness that prevented you from knowing um, the difference between right or wrong. And so uh, we don't hold, those people don't get uh, sentenced to prison and jail. They are committed to, um, to hospitals most commonly. And so what would happen after someone was found not guilty by reason of insanity or NGRI 
is that there would be some kind of evaluation to, deter- to determine sort of the least restrictive environment um, for that person to both undergo treatment and also keeping um, themselves in the community safe. And so we see the individuals here at Ashcliff, which is um, presumably one of these facilities, these psychiatric hospitals that you were discussing, Dr. Weber, and the movie and the facility is based in 1954. Um, So as soon as we arrive at Ashcliff, as we briefly alluded to, we see armed security, there's barbed wire, Um, Teddy mentions that he can tell the fences are electric, Um, and there are individuals just with ankle shackles and handcuffs kind of working about the facility. So, Dr. Weber, is this an accurate de- portrayal of what, I guess, what we might have seen in 1954 and then what we would actually see now? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think, you know, having all of your all of your patients at a hospital be on this remote island, I don't know how, how necessarily realistic that <laughs> is. In terms of security, I, I, I don't know that armed security guards are uh, showing up in hospitals, Um but I think certainly, you know, if you're approaching a psychiatric hospital and depending on sort of the, the security level, there are different security levels of, of psychiatric hospitals and of forensic hospitals. So if you have people who have uh, committed pretty violent uh, crimes, they, you might have things uh, like barbed wire. Um, you'll definitely have several locked doors. Uh, it'll be difficult to get both in and out of that institution for sure. Um and in terms of kind of the ankle shackles and handcuffs, um, I haven't worked specifically in a psychiatric hospital, um, but I've certainly been inside of them. And I haven't seen patients who are walking around uh, their units to be um, to be secured like that. I think it all kind of depends. I think if you have people who are really unstable and if they're not, they're not taking medications, um, they are probably more likely to be kind of in a single cell and they're not going to be out roaming the campus of the facility. Um, So I don't know, you kind of are already getting to this balance of how do we balance what we need in terms of safety with making kind of patients feel like this is a therapeutic environment. And certainly ankle shackles and handcuffs are, are, are not likely to make people feel very comforted. I think that's a really important point, like that balance between like a therapeutic environment as well as safety. One of the things that really struck me about Ashcliff was that there are these different wards. So right away, um, Teddy is introduced to Ward A, Ward B, and Ward C. So A and B are for the female and male individuals or patients. And then Ward C, they say, are for the most dangerous, are kind of held there. Um, and then there's also a very um, mysterious and creepy lighthouse, which at this point, nobody knows what happens in the lighthouse. Um, but I'm curious, is this something that we might see in a forensic hospital where there are different wards like this with like both male and female? and like differing levels of, um, I guess, security and severity of the mental illness of the patients? And if so, are they really this drastically different? I I think there's some accuracy to that. Yeah, typically um, male and female inmates or patients at a psych hospital, I think I know more about correctional institutions and at correctional institutions, men and women will definitely be housed in different places. Um, I'm less sure exactly about what that would look like at a hospital, although my sense is that there would probably be different units for men and women. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think the the places that I've worked, I have seen a difference in um, the ways in which units are laid out for people who are either have committed really serious violent crimes 
and for people who are uh, probably not taking their medications and are just really um, kind of decompens- have a decompensated mental state. So there's um, in the place that I've worked there, it's kind of a step down system. So for individuals who, um, like I, like I mentioned, committed, uh, crimes that were really violent and their symptoms are pretty severe. You might see people who are kind of in a single cell. They're not able to be housed, uh, or even to be around other people unsupervised. Um, and the step down from that is that people have roommates or people are able to wander the unit freely. Um, the step down from that being that it's kind of just, um, regular kind of hospital uh, rooming situation. So yeah, you'll definitely see tiers in terms of the level of security and restriction of movement, depending on, I think, both someone's proclivity to violence and kind of what somebody's current mental state is and kind of how severe their mental illness um, or impairment is at the at any given time. I think that's a great point in that dis- distinction between what the crime was that they committed and proclivity to violence versus their current mental state. Just because someone had a really horrific crime doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be violent in that setting or hurt other individuals or be dangerous. So I think that's a really important distinction. And also just kind of, I think, leads me to think about like kind of the evolution of forensic psychology, but also just the evolution of like how we think about mental illness and that overlap with um you know, proclivity to violence and mental illness. And we do get a little bit of that in the film with Dr. Crawley talking about kind of this new wave of psychiatry and what they're starting to think about with mental illness and how we can try to rehabilitate versus just um, kind of like sedate and um, like lock up people who have committed crimes or who have really serious mental illness. For sure. I think that that's a great point, Dr. Fran. And I think if we're talking about kind of violence risk assessments, those historical factors, um, you know, people who have been violent in the past, or even if their crime was a particularly violent one, um, you know, that's, that's something that is called a static risk factor, it's never going to change. And so I think really looking at the more dynamic risk factors that people have, which are things like kind of, are they taking their medications? Are they symptomatic? Do they have insight? Are they participating in treatment? I mean, those are the things that um, I think as the field has progressed, you see those um, kind of clinical risk factors or those things that are able to be changed as being more of the focus of the treatment providers rather than this person's violent. We got to lock them up and throw away the key mentality. And I think Dr. Crawley also discusses that at one point. So he talks about, I think, related to your points, Dr. Weber and Dr. Fran, um, just that progression of treatment and kind of how things were and how he sees them more at Ashcliff. So we can actually give that a quick listen. Those paintings are quite accurate. Used to be the kind of patients we deal with here were shackled and left in their own filth. They were beaten as if whipping them bloody would drive the psychosis out. We drove screws into their brains. We submerged them in icy water until they lost consciousness or even drowned. And now? We treat them, try to heal, try to cure. And if that fails, at least we provide them with a measure of comfort in their lives, calm. It's my job to treat my patients, not their victims. I'm not here to judge. I think along those lines, we hear, you know, Dr. Crawley just talking about how patients were previously tortured, killed. Um, doesn't seem like they were treated very well. And it's even hard to really see the intention or the motivation of if those things or how those things people would even ever interpret as being helpful or beneficial. So Dr. Weber, how are the ways that like treatment for committed individuals has changed over time um, based on kind of case law and just as things have progressed and evolved? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the idea of people um, 
of kind of how how we treat people who are committed has has definitely evolved over time. And it really initially came out of this idea that if people aren't able to take care of themselves or if there's a risk of them hurting other people, then, you know, us as a society should take these individuals in and we should protect them. It was kind of this like paternalistic idea. Um, what ended up happening is that people were remaining in hospitals and not really participating or engaging in treatment for years and years and years. And so um, people began to sue hospitals and that starts your kind of your chain of case law of people feeling like, well, I can't, ju- you know, my liberties are being taken away and I've been committed and there's no sort of recourse for me to be able to get out. Um, and so, you know, some of the changes that we saw come out of that are that there needed to be this dangerousness piece. It's not just that somebody is experiencing symptoms of a mental illness, um, but they're also need they also need to pose a risk either to themselves or others for to be able to kind of justify the the commitment. And so once once you have somebody who's met those criteria and the standard of proof needed to be able to um, kind of justify the, their commitment, um, then you know your question, Dr. Sam, was what happens? Kind of what are the treatment approaches? And again, there's there's kind of a range there because you're gonna probably have patients who refuse treatment; they don't want to participate, and you know to what extent can we force them to do something that they don't Mm -hmm. want to do? You know, how, again, back to that balance of, you know, respecting people's choices and autonomies and protecting themselves or protecting them um, and protecting society and the community at large. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, it it happens to be the case that in some hospital settings, people are having to, um, having to get um, orders signed by judges to force medications if somebody is decompensating to the point where they're becoming violent. Um, you know, you, you hope that you can sort of get some buy-in by just having conversations um, with the patient or at least kind of connecting with them in some capacity to, to show them that treatment could be helpful for them. Um, but in terms of what that treatment looks like, I think the goal it, it, more recently, kind of ha- how things are happening, is that... Um, you know, the goal is reintegration into the community. And so it's kind of this gradual progression of teaching them the skills to sort of live independently, um, affording them, you know, progressively more freedoms and more privileges and more opportunities to kind of reintegrate. And so uh, in the state where I practice, there's a level system. And so people progress through levels where they're able to kind of go off on supervised visits uh, and then unsupervised visits. So I think what treatment looks like is kind of this combination of depending on what the diagnosis is, probably medications, but also kind of life skills, um, building up people's strengths, connecting them with supports, building insight, uh, all of those things. So it's very much moved away from this torture lobotomy situation. And I think that's probably for the best. I was going to say, I think the people want to know, Dr. Weber, are they performing lobotomies? So a surgical treatment where they're going in and kind of disconnecting parts of the brain. Are, is it happening? No, I would say a resounding no. <laughs> not not in any of the institutions. You don't have ice picks in your office? <laughs> no, not so, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's for the best. It's It kind of does sound like what you're describing is more in line. Um, Dr. Fran alluded to when Dr. Crawley's talking about like the state of the mental health field and how it's transitioned from this more like surgical, maybe like lobotomy and other not um, other practices not really based in evidence um, towards like more of the psycho farm. Do you know the state of the mental health field these days, gentlemen? No, not a clue, doctor. War. The old school believes in surgical intervention, psychosurgery, 
procedures like the transorbital lobotomy. Some say the patients become reasonable, docile. Others say they become zombies. And the new school? Psychopharmacology. A new drug has just been approved called Thorazine, which relaxes psychotic patients. You could say tames them. And which school are you, Doc? Me. I have this radical idea that if you treat a patient with respect, listen to him, try and understand, you just might reach him. He kind of saw those as two extremes, and it seems like what you're discussing is more of like that combination of psychopharm and other um, you know, therapeutic approaches, like therapy, group therapy, things like that. Yes, definitely. And I think the other thing that Dr. Crowley uh, and Teddy during this exchange that's kind of important to talk about is Teddy very clearly doesn't have um, a lot of empathy for the, the people who are at Ashcliff, which is ironic, um, given that, well, <laughs> I won't spoil it yet since we haven't had the reveal, but that exchange where he says, you know, <laughs> we're not here to judge, we're here to treat, and, you know, Teddy says... And personally, Doctor, I'd have to say, screw their sense of calm. I, I think that, that that's sort of a, a stigma that, or a conversation that I've even seen kind of play out uh, with people when I tell them what I do is kind of like, well, these people have done terrible things, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, t- terrible crimes don't necessarily mean terrible people, and if you're going to be involved uh, in the forensic world, whether it's treatment or assessment... Um, it's not. It's certainly not for everybody, but you have to be able to kind of see the humanity in everybody and, and generate empathy for somebody if you're going to be involved in rehabilitating them. You can't have these thoughts of like, well, they don't deserve help. Um, but I know that that's some people's reaction when you hear about some particularly heinous crimes. Yeah, and it sounds like that was more common. Or, I mean, I, it obviously still comes up, but, you know, I think in that exchange between Dr. Crawley and Teddy, you really hear that at this time in particular, there was that conflict where the majority of people probably were on the Teddy side. And then you had these poor psychiatrists like Dr. Crawley, like trying mm-hmm. to get people to understand that we can do more with these individuals than just leave them in a locked room um, for years and years. Um, but hopefully more people are kind of understanding that perspective and through the work that forensic psychologists do kind of really seeing that you can rehabilitate a lot of the individuals that go through this process um, and have much better outcomes than just kind of leaving them in a locked ward for the rest of their lives. Definitely. I will say that's one of the things that like struck me about these clips with Dr. Crowley and just throughout the movie is that I think he, you know, considering it's also based in 1954, I felt like his portrayal was much more in line with like what we would like to see, right? Like using this non-judgmental approach, using a rehabilitative approach, a strengths-based, trying to help these patients um, get better. And I don't know if reintegration is the goal at Ashcliff, but definitely giving them, um, you know, it doesn't seem like that was in the 50s occurring. But it did seem more like at least trying to help them, like he mentioned, feel safe and feel calm um, and, you know, live a life that way as opposed to just locking them up or just um, he makes a comment like some people have the mentality of put them in a corner, give them a pill, it all goes away and kind of just forget about them. What should be a last resort is becoming a first response. Give them a pill, put them in a corner, it all goes away. I did like those aspects of like Dr. Crawley's approach. It does seem a little more in line with what we would hope to see. Yeah, and I, I, the other thing I think, Dr. Fran, you might have mentioned this earlier, you know, you see some of the patients in the in the garden. I mean, I think their portrayal is meant to kind of spook you or kind of uh, make it seem like this is maybe a really bad idea. But I think with certain safeguards in place, I mean, you're not going to probably hand somebody um, – you know, a, a chainsaw to cut down any trees. But I think like to, to have some to, you know, the institution that I did my internship at, um, a number of the inmates would put together a garden. I mean, there are, there are definitely 
outdoor activities and groups. And um, yeah, I think just different activities that that patients or uh, inmates can participate in that are going to um, serve as sort of a motivation. It's going to feel calming. It's going to give them sort of a sense of purpose, a sense of responsibility, all things that are important feelings to cultivate uh, for eventual successful reintegration into the community. Although in the case of Ashcliff, we have the um, situation where a patient escapes, yeah. which is how Teddy ends up on the island in the first place. Although then we learn he's also searching for another patient, mm-hmm. Andrew Latis, who is the man he believes killed his wife by starting the fire. Yes, and interestingly, we have a whole background story of Andrew Latis where he reportedly um, does have auditory hallucinations or is hearing voices that tell him to light things on fire. Um, He doesn't get caught for the fire that um, allegedly kills Teddy's wife, but he is later caught and Teddy believes that he is being um, held and treated at Ashcliffe. So we see that he is now like on this intense search for Rachel and for Andrew Latis. He's asking everyone, all of the other um, patients and even the other employees like nurses and orderlies, like he's trying to ask about where Rachel and Andrew are. Um, and he's trying to let, collect clues as he goes along. And we get some interesting reactions as he's asking different patients in particular about Andrew Latis. They seem a little like squirrely is like the <laughs> best word I can think of. Like they're a little bit on edge. Um, so you're getting kind of starting to get some hints that like something weird is going on, especially related to Andrew Latis. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, on his search for Rachel, while he's searching her room, he finds a cryptic message and he later discovers that this message is alluding to the fact that there is an additional patient um, and this patient is unaccounted for. And so Teddy starts to believe that this message and the reason why people are being squirrely acting weird is because Andrew Latis is this hidden patient. And the whole situation with Rachel is a little suspicious as well because she has kind of some odd interactions with him. She will, first of all, she just magically returns. So he's been help trying to search for her. They can't figure out how she escaped from this locked room. And then all of a sudden she appears again. They have this odd interaction, but Teddy's not convinced that this is really Rachel or that this is actually how things happen. So he does a little bit of his own investigating. And I do want to add that before, Ra- I, I don't think we've even touched upon this yet, but before Rachel reappears, what we learn about Rachel is that she is at Ashcliffe for murdering her children. So she actually um, is a widow. Her husband died in war, and then she drowns her children. And while at Ashcliffe, she kind of lives in this world where she doesn't believe or acknowledge that her children are dead. And she actually still just thinks that she's living in the burbs, talking to the mailman and postman, and, you know, everything is fine. Um, and so... One of the comments that Dr. Crawley says about Rachel while they're searching for her that I thought was really interesting was he says that her biggest obstacle and the reason why she's kind of remained in this um, oblivious state almost is because she has not faced what she's done um, and is having, you know, trouble with that. And she'd rather just live thinking like nothing is wrong. Um, interestingly, though, after Rachel reappears, Teddy we'll kind of get more into this, but he kind of goes on an adventure, climbing down cliffs and whatnot. He ends up in a cave. (laughs) And who does he find in the cave? (laughs) The real Rachel. (laughs) He gets over his fear of water really quickly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So he ends up in the cave with this real Rachel. And Rachel tells him that actually she was a psychiatrist at Ashcliffe. And 
while working there, she discovered that the other doctors are actually experimenting on the patients. Um, they're kind of playing around with their brain and they're trying to make this like group of elite soldiers or soldiers that don't have feeling and will do whatever they're told. She kind of calls them like ghost soldiers, I believe. Um, and when she tries to confront people about what's really going on, they commit her and she actually became a patient of Ashcliff because no one believed that she wasn't quote unquote insane. Which is kind of in line with Teddy's inklings about what might be going on because, again, he has this background of having been in World War II. He already has some concerns about the, um, you know, how forthcoming the psychiatrists are being, what their motives are. And so this definitely kind of supports his hypothesis of what might be going on, that there are individuals who are experimenting on patients and, um, you know, kind of doing some really horrific things. Even more alarming, at the end of this conversation, Rachel tells Teddy um, that he is not going to get off the island. And in fact, they're going to use his history against him. So let's actually listen to a bit of this clip. You think I'm crazy? No. No, no, I And if I say I'm not crazy, well, that hardly helps, does it? It's the Kafkaesque genius of it. People tell the world you're crazy. And all your protests to the contrary just confirm what they're saying. I'm not following you. I'm sorry. Once you're declared insane, then anything you do is called part of that insanity. Reasonable protests or denial. Valid fears. Paranoia. Survival instincts are defense mechanisms. You're smarter than you look, Marshall. That's probably not a good thing. Let me ask you, any past traumas in your life? Yes. Why, why Why? would that matter? Because they're going to point to some event in your past and say it's the reason you lost your sanity. So that when they commit you here, your friends and colleagues will say, of course he cracked. Yeah. Who wouldn't after what he'd been through? They can say that about anyone. Anyone at the all. The point is they're going to say it about you. Yeah, I remember thinking uh, when, when I was watching the movie, the the part where she says, once you're deemed insane, everything you do is in that. And it reminded me, I'm not going to be able to say the specific year um, and, and names of the authors who did this study, but they it reminds me of this experiment where people who did not actually have a serious mental illness uh, presented to a hospital um, and were, I think, kind of told to fake a mental illness and then... It, it took them a much longer period of time to get released from the hospital as I think any of us would suspect. You're exactly right, Dr. Weber. So, you know, just like Rachel mentioned, like after people think you're insane, like everything you do to kind of prove otherwise just kind of gives them further evidence in their mind that you are in fact insane. And so you're alluding to the study that was published in Science in 1973. It was conducted by psychologist David Rosenhan, um, and he did have what he called pseudo-patients, so three women and five men, including himself, and they presented to 12 different psychiatric hospitals in five states within the United States. They were all kind of feigning uh, hallucinations and other psychotic symptoms, and they were all admitted, all diagnosed with disorders, and after admission, they stopped reporting any symptoms. They kept telling staff that they felt fine. They were no longer ex experiencing the hallucinations. Um, and yet they were all forced to remain admitted. And they were all forced to agree to take antipsychotic drugs as a condition of their release. And the average time that they spent in the hospitals were 19 days. And all but one were still released with the diagnosis of schizophrenia in remission. Um, so this is a... This is a study that is discussed a lot. I do think it is 
more currently controversial, but it was at the time very important and served as a criticism of psychiatric diagnosis and just kind of the idea of wrongful involuntary commitment. So, you know, if quote unquote normal healthy people were admitted and treated, how do the doctors and the providers at these hospitals really know what they're doing was basically the question that it brought to mind. How do you feel about that, Dr. Weber? Yeah, it's it's an interesting study. I don't think it uh, makes psychologists, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it makes us uh, look like we know exactly what we're doing. And, um, you know, I, I think my reactions to it are that it's, I think that makes it all the more important to have multiple sources of information when you're diagnosing. I mean, you can't, it's not just, you know, the patient tells me that this is what they're experiencing and, you know, therefore that's, that's what's going on. I mean, I think there's a lot of critical thinking and judgment involved and kind of checking uh, what your hunches are and testing hypotheses and seeing how they respond in different situations and how they're interacting with other people. I think, you know, if somebody tells you they're hearing voices, um, I don't think a good psychologist or a good forensic psychologist that that's the end of their assessment uh, and would lead to any kind of diagnosis. It's a much more, should be a much more involved process than that. Um, so yeah, I think this, this study highlights something that um, historically we, we have not been the best at in terms of being reliable in our diagnosing, but it's, it's something that we're getting better at and continue to strive to, to be better at. And my, in my opinion, I think one of the ways that we can do that is to utilize multiple sources of information when, when providing diagnoses that will carry such, uh, such a stigma and such a weight with that person. I mean, if you diagnose someone with a psychotic disorder and, um, you know, prescribe them antipsychotics, those are not things that, uh, should be done lightly. Um, so I think it just highlights the importance of making sure that we're, being reliable and valid in the measures and um, the methods that we're using to diagnose people. Very true. I like that you both brought that study up because that's exactly what Teddy's afraid of, right? Now that Rachel has put this idea into his head, he's very concerned that they are going to basically say that he has a mental illness and going to use that against him to basically keep him there forever, even if he actually doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, But as he gets more stressed, we also see that his symptoms do seem to escalate a bit. He has as having more nightmares, having more hallucinations of his wife. He even has a nightmare where he sees Rachel drown drown her children and then asks Teddy to help her. So it's really like integrating what he's going through at Ashcliff with what seems to have happened in his past. Um, and he, you know, starts to really be concerned about anyone giving him cigarettes mm-hmm. or food or, you know, again, ideas that Rachel has put in his head of these are the ways that they're going to try to trick you and keep you here forever. I think that's also compounded by the fact that at one point when Teddy goes into Ward C, so the ward where the most like dangerous um, patients are held, he has an interaction with a patient, um, George Noyce. And we get a little bit of a history that George Noyce is a patient that Teddy had previously interviewed and got in like kind of the deets on Ashcliff and like went there to find latest. Um, but the conversation with George Noyce is... Um, I don't know the word for it. It's confusing, I guess, to say the least. But basically... Noise is referring to Teddy as latest. He's saying things like, this is all for you. You're just a rat in a maze. Don't you get it? This is a game. All of this is for you. You're not investigating anything. You're a fucking rat in a maze. And he, similarly to Rachel, um, 
Rachel in the cave, that is, he similarly tells Teddy, like, you're never going to get out of here. They're going to keep you, and you're stuck. You want to uncover the truth? You gotta let it go. I can't. You have to let it go! I can't! I can't! And Dr. Fran, you alluded to him, he's starting to see his wife. This is actually one of the scenes while he's talking to George Noyes. He he does have a hallucination or he does see his wife there. She talks to him and she's kind of pleading with him like to go find the truth, go kill Latus. Tell him, Teddy. Tell him why. You gotta do it. There's no other way. Let it go. Tell him about the day you brought me my locket. You gotta do it! And then George Noyce is kind of like the other person on his shoulder saying, no, forget about latest. Like, you need to let it all go. <laughs> um, but I bring up this scene because we do see Teddy become um, aggressive and violent with George Noyce here, too. When he's kind of confronted with this conflicting or confusing information, he becomes very irritated. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on. I know Dr. Sam's spy notebook is filled <laughs> to the brim. And so we're getting a lot of conflicting information. We're kind of going back and forth at this point of like, what's really going on at Ashcliff? What's really going on with Teddy? At this point, I think we're even wondering a little bit of like what's real and what's not. Yes. So Dr. Sam, where are we at with the spy notebook? What's it telling us? Well, let me tell you, I tried to consolidate the overbrimming spy notebook to a much shorter like spy cheat sheet. Um, but basically, I think one of the main things we're seeing, you know, we talked about Teddy in the beginning. He has this history of trauma. I think the whole time he's at Ashcliff, I feel like those pieces are being exacerbated, right? He's having much more of these nightmares related to his wife, related to the war. He's starting to have hallucinations, seeing his wife, and she's kind of telling him to seek out and murder people, right? He's very distressed. Um, he's climbing in caves. He's losing his partner. Uh, things are definitely um, coming apart at the seams. And I think along with Teddy... All of us watching the movie, we're kind of left questioning, like, what's really happening? And so it really kind of climaxes when he goes to the lighthouse, which, first of all, that swim to the lighthouse is very treacherous (laughs) and (laughs) whatever. It's a suspension of disbelief. Let's say he makes it to the lighthouse unscathed. During Um, a hurricane. And we learn there. Mm -hmm. Right, during a hurricane. (laughs) But we learn there that actually Teddy is Andrew Latis. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Ta-da. (laughs) But do we learn that, right? So Dr. Crawley and um, Dr. Sheehan are telling Teddy that he is Andrew Latus. Let's listen a little bit to see how this all goes down in the lighthouse. You've been here for two years, a patient of this institution. After everything I've seen here, doctor, you you really think you're going to convince me I'm crazy, huh? Do you know the kind of people that I deal with every day? I'm a U.S. Marshal, for God's sakes. You were a U.S. Marshal. Here's a copy of the intake form. You broke into Ward C4, proof of the 67th patient. If you'd gotten it to the mainland, you could have blown the lid off this place. Where, 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 yeah. where, Somehow where, where, you couldn't find time to look at it. Well, read it now. Patient is highly intelligent, highly delusional, decorated army veteran. Present for the liber- liberation of Dachau. Former U.S. Marshal, known proclivity for violence, shows no remorse for his crime because he denies the crime ever ever took place. Highly developed and fantastical narratives which preclude facing the truth of his act. You came here for the truth. Here it is. 
Your name is Andrew Ladis, the 67th patient at Ashcliffe. He's you, Andrew. Bullshit. You were committed here by court order 24 months ago. Your crime is terrible, one you can't forgive yourself for, so you invented another self. <sighs> I wish I could let you just live in your fantasy world. I really do. So I think something this movie does so well is that you are so bought into Teddy's experience that at this point you're like, no, there's no way. Like, they are just creating this whole elaborate scheme to convince Teddy that he has this disorder or these delusions because, like, you've just bought so much into, like, his experience throughout the movie that, like, you don't want to believe that the whole thing has been made up. Very true. And it's like, we've gone along for the ride. George Noyce, Rachel, um, even some of the other patients, like, you know, they've been warning him. This is exactly what they've warned him about, right? And now it's happening. They're trying to prove or trick him that he's insane. They're trying to capture him here because he's actually unearthed this, like, diabolical plan. Um, but I think this this scene is so masterful because actually, like, I do believe Dr. Crawley. <laughs> Dr. Crawley, like, he really lays it out there. He gives him the intake form. Um, and you do slowly start to see that Teddy is shaken. He's kind of wondering, like, wait, okay, what is real? What's really happening? And part of what really clicks for him is the scene with the gun. Essentially, he goes to shoot Dr. Crawley, and the gun doesn't work, or it does, but then he realizes it's a hallucination, and the gun has actually been plastic the whole movie. Don't move! Don't move! Andrew! Andrew! No, no! My name is Edward Daniels! This one's loaded. I can tell by the way. I see, and that's your firearm, Marshal, you're sure? My initials are on the side. There's a dent in the barrel from when Philip Stack shot at me. You're not going to fuck with my mind on this one, Doctor. Then blast away, because that's the only way you're ever getting off this island. <laughs> what did you do to my goddamn gun? It's a toy, Andrew. And it's kind of like this, this, this moment where he starts to realize that pieces of what he's believed to be his reality throughout the whole film are not what other people perceive to be reality. Exactly. And then one of the most like kind of sad and just um, kind of scary, I guess, parts of the movie is that we also learn the true nature of the crime, right? So they're kind of tiptoeing around it at first, but we learn that actually Teddy's wife, um, or Andrew, I should say now, his wife was not murdered in a fire. She, in fact, drowned their three children in a lake. Um, Andrew arrives home to find this scene. His wife is very um, just kind of like disoriented and oblivious to the crime that has just been um, completed. And then he kills her. We're telling you the truth. Dolores was insane, manic depressive, suicidal. You drank, stayed away. Ignored what everyone told you. You moved to that lake house after she purposely set your city apartment on fire. You were a thing. You were lying! Andrew, Andrew, All you've done is lie! Your children, Andrew, your children! Simon. Henry. We never had any children. Your wife drowned them at the cabin by the lake. And here, the little girl, the one you dream of every night. We never had a little girl. The one who tells you over and over that you should have saved her. Saved them all. Your daughter. Her name was Rachel. Are you going to deny that she ever lived? Andrew, are you? So this is really kind of added trauma to his history that leads him to start living this 
alternative life, so to speak, or almost a delusion, as Dr. Crowley alludes to, where he is, in fact, the hero, um, and he is trying to solve this big mystery and, and help find the killer of his wife. But we now know that that is not the case. And that this whole thing has been constructed as a way to try to get Andrew to recognize and you know, acknowledge that this is who he is and this is what happened. Um, and Dr. Crawley indicates that if Andrew can't kind of start to perceive reality um, and take responsibility for his actions, that they're going to have to take more extreme measures and lobotomize him. So poor Dr. Crawley mentions that he's been trying for years or at least months to try to find different ways to help Andrew come to terms with reality so that he can avoid this pretty extreme measure and that everything he's tried just hasn't worked. And so this is like the very, very extreme that he has gone <laughs> to to try to help Andrew. Yeah, I agree. Let's actually listen to when Andrew has his breakthrough. And then I'm very curious to hear Dr. Dr. Weber talk about whether she's ever had this amazing of results and kind of what we would actually think or hope to expect. So let's listen. Why are you here? Because I killed my wife. And why did you do that? Because she murdered our children. She told me to let her go. Who's Teddy Daniels? He doesn't exist. Neither does Rachel Solano. I made them up. Why? We need to hear you say it. After she tried to kill herself the first time, Dolores told me she... she had an insect living inside her brain. She could feel it clicking across her skull, just pulling the wires just for fun. Told me that, but I didn't listen. I loved her so much. Why did you make them up? Because I can't take knowing that Dolores killed our children. I mean, I, I killed them because I didn't. I didn't get her help. You know. I killed them. My name's Andrew Latus, and I murdered my wife in the spring of 52. So I think that that clip is just a heartbreaking clip. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, per usual, does a great job. You know, he just looks so distressed. He looks so just distraught, and he's tearful, and he's explaining, you know, that he knows who he really is, and he knows what happened to his family. Yeah, I think that is, it's... A really well done scene, uh, just in terms of kind of the the heaviness of that kind of breakthrough of when you actually see sort of this nugget of insight that Andrew has of you know oh what what I was doing and and kind of the, the way that I was existing and the the things that I was pursuing was actually not reality based. Um, I mean, th that kind of moment uh, with somebody who has delusions is, I, I think, what you what you hope for as a treatment provider. Although I will say, I don't know that the methods that Dr. Crowley and his team got up to to, to foster this, <laughs> this moment of insight. Um, and I also don't know that it's the most realistic portrayal of how insight happens with somebody who, who is delusional. But I do think that that's, that's what you're working towards with somebody who, who does have delusions that are pretty entrenched is to have 
kind of this moment of clarity and how you go about doing that can vary. Um, but it is, it is a heartbreaking scene for sure. I think one of the biggest things too that struck with me is like that there's just this immense amount of guilt. Um, Teddy talks about like, you know, he actually thinks he's responsible for all of it, the death of his children, because his wife had, um, you know, in the movie, they report that she, they describe her as manic depressive. Uh, if you've watched our Silver Linings Playbook movie, you know that that is um, a different name for what someone with bipolar disorder might be diagnosed or called. Um, we also learned that she had various suicide attempts in the past. And so he just thinks him not being able to support or get her help or treatment led to the murder of his children and then ultimately him killing the wife. Um, so I think that we can kind of see that this these delusions came from that trauma and also just perhaps this like guilt that he feels associated with it. And it presents, I think this interesting challenge of in so many ways, it's important for people who um, do have a mental illness to have insight into what that mental illness is and what it looks like and how it causes them to kind of think and behave and feel differently. But on the other hand, you're kind of, you're ma- you're making someone face a very painful past and a painful reality. So it feels a little counter intuitive to or at least maybe like contraindicated therapeutically to kind of make him face his reality which is an extremely hard and painful one i would agree i think um you know dr fran and i talk about this a lot i think this especially applies to this movie but it is all for a dramatic effect right so we're not going to expect to see such a heartbreaking cinematic breakthrough where they realize it all has been, you know, something that they, um, they even, the doctors say like that he quote unquote made up because of everything that he's been through to protect himself. Um, and now he's like facing it all. We also would not expect, and we'll get more into this in a bit as well, but we would not expect a whole psychiatric facility to go through this ruse to kind of trick this individual that everything they believe is in fact accurate, but then somehow that leads to them realizing that it's a delusion. It just doesn't make that much sense. So what is really going on with Teddy? What do you think, Dr. Fran? Well, before we actually talk diagnostically, I was curious, Dr. Weber, like how would we assess someone like Andrew to try to figure out what might be going on with them? Yes. Yeah, I think um, it's it's tough because with this specific type of presentation, um, there's obviously evidence that his you can't kind of take his word for things. Um So I think in the field of forensic psychology in general, I I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I think the reliance and the importance of collecting collateral sources of information. So, you know, his military records to kind of confirm um, that he was in the military and that he was in fact a part of kind of the liberation of Nazi Germany and, um, you know, talking to family members, records from previous hospitalizations. I mean, a lot of it will be kind of a clinical interview of seeing kind of what the person's mental state is, but you're going to have to rely on other sources of information to kind of corroborate what it is you're seeing. Um, so that would be my my kind of recommendation. I remember just as a, a kind of quick funny story, one of my colleagues was evaluating somebody who was talking about um, kind of their dreams of, or their, I think they were basically saying that they were a famous rapper um, or that they were a rap star. And she kind of assumed that that was a delusion and then ended up Googling this person. And this person was in fact, like had a little bit of a following. So (laughs) I think I just tell it as a cautionary tale that you can't always assume that things that sound unbelievable are, are in fact not true. Um, So 
I think in, in terms of diagnosing, obviously interact with, with the patient or the individual, collect data, but then verify uh, with collateral sources would be infinitely important in this case. I, I can't even, you know, as you were telling that story and as I was thinking about this, like just imagine that Teddy Daniels shows up to Ashcliff and actually isn't a patient of Ashcliff, right? If he shows up there, there are no real like outward indicators of his um, behavior, the things that he's expressing that would maybe highlight the, uh, his history or even his mental illness, right? Like if you were to meet Teddy Daniels and you didn't know he had murdered his wife and you didn't know about his history, you would think he's just a U.S. marshal coming to investigate a case, right? And on the flip side, like if some people are saying things that don't always seem believable, like you just don't know. So either way, it's such a um, a difficult thing to tease out. And I think getting the multiple sources of information and really having to do that due diligence is such an important piece of that. And like is oftentimes the case, we aren't able to go get collateral information <laughs> for, for Andrew because it's a movie. But based on what we do have... Um, we already alluded to the fact that Teddy does seem to have PTSD-type symptoms. We already know that throughout the film, but I think that is extra exacerbated or, you know, we see that a lot more towards the end with learning this extra horrific trauma that he's been through with, you know, coming upon his wife who has murdered their children, having to fish his children out of the water, and then mm. killing his wife um, in like a, a, you know, crime of passion. So... Something I was curious about, you know, I've worked a lot with PTSD, but a lot of times it's much more with children and adolescents where psychotic symptoms, symptoms aren't as common. So something I was really interested in is like, could a like extreme stress reaction like Teddy or sorry, with like Andrew experiences (laughs) um, really create the type of like intense hallucinations and delusions that we see? And actually there is quite a bit of overlap between PTSD and some psychotic symptoms. So about 52% of people who reported having PTSD at some point also report having some kind of psychotic symptom like a hallucination or a delusion. Um, about 30% of those people like thought someone was spying on them or following them. That's a little bit, not necessarily spying or following, but kind of towards the end of the film, that is what Teddy is anticipating mm-hmm. as people are kind of, you know, after him. out to get him. Mm-hmm. Or... of people say that they've seen something that others couldn't see. So we definitely see that with the hallucinations of his wife. Although then it gets a little bit into, is this an intrusive thought like a flashback or is this a hallucination? And the main way that they say to distinguish between those is the reality testing piece. So does the person know that this isn't actually happening? If that's the case, then that's more of a flashback versus if they really can't determine whether this is in their reality or not, then that would be more of a psychotic symptom. Mm -hmm. So for, for Andrew, when he sees his wife, he does seem to know that that's not She's not really there. So that would, to me, seem a little bit more like a PTSD-type reaction versus Rachel in the cave. That whole thing is a hallucination, and she's not really there. And he doesn't know that she's not really there. So that seems to me to be a little bit more on the psychotic symptom side. That's a really interesting point because it makes me think. So um, Dr. Weber and Dr. Fran and I, we really have had some like multiple discussions just trying to tease apart like what we think is um, going on with Teddy, a.k.a. Um, Andrew Latest diagnostically. I do think, you know, as Dr. Fran has made a fantastic case, there's the very apparent PTSD symptoms. Um, I think where we get a little bit um, less certain is with this psychosis, so these hallucinations and these delusions. Um, And I think it's really interesting about the fact that, like, when he sees – Dolores or his wife, yes, he kind of knows that that's not real. Um, Rachel in the cave, he definitely thought was real. Um, And I think relatedly, one of the main 
things we see with Andrew is this whole delusion, right? So the story of him being Teddy versus Andrew Latis. And I know we've mentioned delusions a lot this session. And so delusions are basically just a fixed belief that don't change. So even when they're being a person is being presented with conflicting evidence or things that might not be in line with this belief that they have, they still really hold it to be true. So we're definitely seeing that with Andrew, right? He really believes he is Teddy. He really believes he's there to find Rachel and Andrew Latis. Um, he does not even acknowledge that, you know, the crime in which he killed his wife and which his wife killed the children. So a new disorder that we grappled with related to Andrew is delusional disorder. This is not one that we've covered yet on the podcast. Yeah, and delusional disorder is really interesting because I think when people think of psychotic symptoms, they automatically jump to schizophrenia. We won't go into a ton of schizophrenia today, um, but kind of just generally it doesn't seem like Teddy would meet criteria or Andrew would meet criteria for schizophrenia. But delusional disorder does seem like it could fit for him. You're looking at one or more delusions that go on for at least a month. He definitely hits that criteria. Um, You don't meet criteria for schizophrenia because you can't have both. Um, And then the functioning is not obviously impaired. And that's something Dr. Sam was alluding to earlier is like from the exterior, he's able to kind of go about his seeming normal life as a U.S. Marshal and kind of do the things that he needs to do. He's not having violent outbursts for the most part. He's for the most part functioning fairly normally, Mm -hmm. although I bet one could argue that he is pretty impaired if his whole life is being lived through this delusion. He can't really do the things that he should be doing, but (laughs) putting that aside. um, So, so far, some of those criteria he does seem to meet for a delusional disorder. Definitely. And I think, you know, kind of part of that where he is impaired because he's living this alternate life, but it's at face value, right, that they seem believable and could be possible. And so it definitely meets that face value test. I think where we were a little um, uncertain is the hallucinations. So hallucinations are also a symptom of schizophrenia. And as Dr. Fran said, we're not going to get into that too much today. Um, But interestingly with him, they're not as pervasive or as impairing as we might expect to see with schizophrenia, and they are what we would call congruent. So they're in line with the overall delusion. He's not having additional um, hallucinations or hearing or seeing things um, that might seem more random in nature. His hallucinations are very much like, here is this person that's trying to warn me about the whole conspiracy I'm trying to uncover at Ashcliffe. Um, So kind of with those inklings, Personally, I'm leaning towards, you know, given that this is a movie and it's all like hyperbolic and what information we have, I would lean towards saying Andrew does meet more for like that PTSD and this delusional disorder picture. And there's not a ton of data on delusional disorder because it is a fairly rare diagnosis, but there is some preliminary evidence that delusional disorder can be brought on by a period of significant stress. Um, And we've talked about before, people can have multiple diagnoses, so it is possible that someone with Andrew's background could have really significant, horrible traumatic events that lead to PTSD-type symptoms and a psychotic break, what we might call, or like a delusional disorder in response to that trauma. I think the only thing that I I would add to that is, um, yeah, I think, you know, his his trauma history is certainly uh, apparent and brought up again. And I think you can conceptualize a lot of what we see happening through this kind of trauma lens that you, that we've mentioned, I think for people who, uh, particularly men um, with psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, you would also expect to start to see symptoms develop or the onset of symptoms in late adolescence or early adulthood. And Teddy, aka Andrew, aka Leo, um, I mean, he's a little, 
he's a little older. So I think, um, you know, if this was a real person and obviously I understand it's a movie, but the kind of the, when his symptoms, when these hallucinations and delusions start, um, is kind of, is pretty inconsistent from when you would first see them. That's a great point, Dr. Weber. And I think, you know, what you're saying too, is it's very in line with kind of almost a reaction or exacerbated brought on by the trauma, right? So this all really, like we see it kind of starting with his initial trauma he had some difficulty but after the incident with his wife and children that really brings on the onset of these delusions and the hallucinations um i wanted to add really briefly as dr friend mentioned it is extremely rare so the prevalence of delusional disorder is estimated to only be around 0.2 percent um so you know not much is known in terms of like any they, they don't believe there are gender differences so males versus females being diagnosed um and there are also subtypes depending on the types of delusions that an individual is experiencing um but i think teddy he doesn't really match necessarily those specific other than he does have some thoughts about like others being after him at ashcliff but overall it's a much more specific type of delusion that he's experiencing Mm -hmm. well that that those persecutory delusions that you that you mentioned are having these feelings that somebody's out to get you i think like i was thinking about that and because like i'm i'm sort of on the same boat as you guys of kind of conceptualizing or seeing things through this kind of trauma uh, that he's been through. And I think in some ways, paranoia and the hypervigilance that you might see with someone with PTSD could could look um, look similarly of just kind of being on high alert, being skeptical of other people. Um, so I, I had that thought as well. And so it seems like we're all on the same page just in terms of what might be going on with Andrew. Dr. Weber, would you play into the delusion to assist with kind of achieving the type of breakthrough that we see with Andrew that um, Dr. Crowley and Sheehan engage in? I mean, in one word, no. In <laughs> in more than one word, I think it's it's a tough balance for sure with, with somebody who is kind of has these entrenched delusional beliefs where they're not going to just, you know, respond to you saying, well, that's, that's actually not reality. That's not true. Um, I think, yeah, if, with someone with those kind of beliefs, you don't want to A, argue with them or B, go along with them. So you kind of have to find this middle ground of, you know, I guess validating that, that, that is their emotional experience and that this is something that they believe and that, you know, when you believe something really strongly, there's going to obviously be an emotional component to that. Um, but yeah, going along with, or the flip side, arguing with are kind of two ends of the spectrum to stay (laughs) away from, I would say. What would be, um, some treatment options that you might see for someone like Andrew? Um, I think he's, he's complicated clinically because I think we've, (laughs) we've talked about he has this trauma piece. And so you need to make sure that that's being, uh, addressed appropriately, but you do have some of these, uh, psychotic symptoms, these hallucinations, these delusions, which, are generally uh, kind of the first line treatment would to be pers- to prescribe some kind of antipsychotic medication. The tricky thing is that delusions are um, not, they don't always respond to antipsychotics. It can take longer and sometimes they might not respond at all. And so I think, um, you know, Dr. Crowley is onto this, that there needs to be some kind of insight building in order to effectively work with someone who has delusions Um, And when I I say insight, I mean kind of awareness that they have a mental illness, awareness that their beliefs are in fact delusional, which uh, it takes time. So I think the treatment options for someone who has uh, delusions that are entrenched and that are not responsive to medication is just going to be working with that individual over an extended period of time to kind of develop these nuggets of insight when you can. Um, 
So some of the things that that I've had experience with are, are groups where there are people who are maybe further along in their treatment progress who do have insight and can help individuals who are lacking in that insight to to kind of um, you know share with them kind of from a psychoeducational component about this is what a delusion is and this is kind of how uh, it might impact you and and working with uh, that individual to eventually hopefully challenge some of those delusional beliefs, but. It's, it's tough and can be really resistant to treatment. I like how you highlight those different pieces that we do see some things that might be in line from the film for what you might see in real life. Like even the medication he mentions is one of the antipsychotics that would potentially be used to treat schizophrenia or some kind of psychotic disorder. And then insight building, obviously the way they do that in the film is pretty extreme that we wouldn't really see in real life, like you mentioned. But, um, and what we don't see is that therapeutic piece, like you were mentioning. Um, And because he has that PTSD background and that trauma background, you know, the research I was showing for the co-occurring psychotic and PTSD type symptoms is that you could still use some of the same therapeutic interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy for trauma, prolonged exposure, like some of those evidence-based treatments for PTSD in combination with those other pieces that you mentioned, ideally, as long as there is that response to the intervention and then also, um, the psychiatric medications, Mm -hmm. but definitely a complicated case with with Andrew. Well, we can discuss real, actual, evidence-based treatments all we want, but in the movie, Andrew is cured. And we see at the end, they're kind of doing one last test to see if Andrew really is better. Let's listen to that real quick. How are we doing this morning? Good. Neil? Can't complain. So what's our next move? You tell me. Got to get off this rock, Chuck. Get back to the mainland. Whatever the hell's going on here, it's bad. Don't worry, Potter. They're not going to catch us. That's right. We're too smart for them. Yeah, we are, aren't we? You know, this place makes me wonder. Yeah, what's that, boss? Which would be worse? To live as a monster? Or to die as a good man? So I have to admit that I did not remember this line from the first time I watched this movie, and I was shocked. Um, What it really implies is that Andrew actually knows that he's been living in a delusion, Mm -hmm. but is choosing to pretend that he still is in that delusion in order to be lobotomized so he no longer has to live with that trauma. And as we've discussed in the past, and as we see with Teddy, um, you know, he may be using avoidance as a major coping. So he has um, been in this del- in this world of delusions to protect himself from the truth. And now that he has this insight, he's still looking to really protect himself from remembering and feeling the things that he does. Um, I think it's really impactful too. Like as he gets up to walk away, he like seemingly knows, like he's going with them to be lobotomized. And then Mark Ruffalo's character says, Teddy, Teddy, like calling him by the false name and he doesn't respond. And I think that's also a clue that like, he's not even responding to Teddy in that moment. Like he does know that he is Andrew. I think Leonardo DiCaprio loves to star in movies where at the end you're like, what is happening? (laughs) I also feel like this movie came out around the same time as Inception, and I yes. so I always connect these two movies. I mean, you've got Leo being the lead actor in both of them. There's also a lot of confusion about what's real and what's not. So I just always connect these two films. And like hallucinations about the wife. Like, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. <laughs> well, I think that, that part is like what makes it uh, a good movie. And I don't know, like from a trying to dissect a mental illness standpoint, that that's kind of what they were 
trying to clear up at the end. But I think for sure, just from a like entertainment standpoint, you're like, oh, they've, you know, they've been going, they've been doing this big ruse with him. And now he's kind of playing with them a little bit, which I thought was an interesting kind of ending note. Very true. And with that, let's get into our PH Don'ts. This is not a safe place. Sorry, are you, you going to like keep touching me like that? That guy is a total loon. But I cannot talk about my clients. I cannot talk about my clients. Oh, that's it. Great, great job, everybody. Thank you. Don't let dangerous patients run around freely on an island without any supervision. Don't let your patients wander around the woods, climb on treacherous cliffs, blow up cars, go swimming in rocky waters, or beat up a guard during a hurricane. Don't put patients in danger by putting them in situations in which they are physically assaulted by other patients. Don't allow your patient to tranquilize you. Don't call your patients monsters. Don't lobotomize or experiment on your patients. And don't create an elaborate ruse to trick or treat your patient. So to wrap things up today, we would like to do our overall impressions and ratings. So Dr. Weber, can you get us started with your overall impressions of the film? Um, I thought Shutter Island was a appropriately spooky pick for <laughs> for this month. Um, I I think it was interesting in terms of how it portrayed a kind of complicated diagnostic picture from a mental illness perspective, um, and also had these twists and turns uh, that kept you guessing and on your toes. So I think those two, two things wedded together uh, to have a mental illness component and to keep me on my toes are things that I enjoy in a in a movie so i liked it i thought it was i thought it was good i thought the acting was good there were some things that were a little questionable but overall i was glad to have the assignment to watch it for this i would agree i did also really enjoy this movie um and actually i think dr weber and i share um similar thoughts on scary movies so for me this one was a little bit creepier than i needed it to be there were a few times that i did cover my eyes particularly (laughs) while they were in block c just knowing something was going to jump out you know, I knew how that was movie was going to end. I knew that nothing paranormal or super scary was going to happen, but still, I don't like jump scares in movies. But other than that, I agree. Overall, it was a really great film. I think the directing by Martin Scorsese is great, and obviously the acting, especially by Leo, is really good as well. What about you, Dr. Sam? I agree. I thought overall it's enjoyable. I do not find it as scary as Dr. Fran and Dr. Weber, but I do think it is very suspenseful. Um, And I'm typically pretty good, you know, with my spy notebook at all, I'm typically pretty good at predicting twists and endings. And I honestly don't remember when I first watched it if I, you know, guessed the ending or what I thought about it. But um, I think knowing how it ends, it's really cool to go back and watch it because you pick up on a lot of other details that you didn't the first time. Um, But very enjoyable, good for Halloween. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about what we think in terms of the psychological portrayal. So um, Dr. Weber, as you know, we like to call it our DSM-5, so Diagnosing Shows and Movies. A one is outrageous, not even close to an accurate portrayal, and five is the most accurate with minor deviations. So what would you give Shutter Island on the DSM-5 overall for its portrayal of the psychological themes we discussed today? I I think I'm going to rate it. Uh, you guys don't do half points on this show. I know it's a thing. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm leaning... <laughs> I'm going to call it like a, a three plus. I think that there were... Uh, <laughs> There were things about uh, the way Teddy slash Andrew um, 
portrayed kind of his his trauma history and his experience of delusions and hallucinations that were pretty accurate. I think there were aspects of the treatment environment and the treatment itself that were not so accurate. So I think that's that's where I dinged at a couple of points. Dr. Fran? So I was also thinking a three. I agree that the way that PTSD and responses to trauma were portrayed is in line with what could happen, obviously, in an extreme case. Yeah. Um, I also think the portrayal of Dr. Crawley was pretty positive, particularly for the time that the movie takes place. He did have a pretty advanced conceptualization of how to work with individuals with severe mental illness like we see in the film. I do obviously have to deduct some points for the way that Ashcliff is portrayed as a psychiatric inpatient facility and then the way the um, psychiatric team really feeds into the delusion. Uh, what about you, Dr. Sam? I think we're uh, a very agreeable panel today. I'm also going to give it a three. I went in, wa- like, went into watching it thinking I was going to like give it a super low score, actually. Um, but I think after watching it, I agree with the PTSD, like kind of the trauma background um, and what we see in Teddy uh, being more in line with what we might expect. I also think that this one really made us think and even debate the diagnosis. And it was a new diagnosis. Like, it's It's not something you typically see in movies or even in the media with the delusional disorder. Um, And I think that it created a more nuanced portrayal than what you might expect in terms of what we see more often on the screen, which is more like schizophrenia and things like that. So I thought that that aspect of it was pretty neat. And I agree that Dr. Crawley's portrayal overall was pretty progressive for the time. And I liked um, how he took that more like rehabilitative and... um, positive approach to trying to help the patients that he serves there were obviously other doctors in that facility that were not as good as him and were like just eager to lobotomize everyone um and just in terms of the dramatic effect and ashcliff and the things that we've talked about it does get dinged for those well thank you so much dr weber for joining us today and providing your expertise and thoughts on this movie we've really enjoyed having you on thanks so much for having me guys i had a blast thank you so be on the lookout for additional spooky sessions this month We covered a lot of really great resources and new terms today, so definitely head on over to our website, freudianscripts.com, for a list of new terms and resources. Also, let us know your thoughts on the movie. We'd love to hear what questions you have about what was covered in today's episode and things that you'd like us to cover on future episodes. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're going to have some upcoming polls so you can be involved in picking the next sessions. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. 